0: I'm Kate Daniels. Dr. Adia Harvey-Wingfield is a professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. She's also a writer and author of two important books in the healthcare field, and is with us this morning to share some important insights into her newest book, Flatlining, Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy. This important book is truly a must-read for any and all of us who care about equity and social justice with a lens here on the healthcare field. Healthcare, a basic human need. How is treatment being provided, and what about the healthcare workers doing the providing? That's the area that Dr. Harvey Wingfield focuses on, and it's great. To have her here today. Dr. Adia Harvey Wingfield, good morning. Many thanks for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate this opportunity that you're taking time with us, that you've written uh, what I feel is a very important work, very important book, Flatlining Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy. And uh, really, you pack so much into really what is a small tome, I feel very important information uh, that reflects life in uh, uh, all across these united states am i correct I, yes i think so and focusing on healthcare it's not just healthcare of course but is this would you say then your primary focus of work and thus you've focused on healthcare and healthcare workers
1: Yes. In this particular project specifically, I did focus on uh, healthcare care workers uh, in and of themselves. But I think that some of the issues that I raise are probably present for workers in other occupations as well.
0: So taking that into account... You know, we can transfer it to other uh, careers, other professions. But healthcare, care, of course, also makes sense because of what it means to us as individuals and what uh, you go into really important history in flatlining as to what it means for people of color
1: right right and that was a thing that i really wanted to focus on given the discussions and debates that we're having about healthcare today and the implications for the us as it becomes an increasingly multiracial society
0: and so i don't know that we want to think that that's going to make any kind of improvement because certainly um we seem to have gone in the past and you give us a good history of this maybe there was some kind of increase in help, but really it was short-lived, whatever existed, and then it's really uh, declined again. Right,
1: right. I mean, we know that again from the discussions that we have in the policy debates about how healthcare should be framed and what it should look like, whether it should be something that everybody has a right to or whether it's a privilege that you should be able to afford. And what I wanted to do was to have that as the context for the book, but also to think about what some of those changes and discussions mean for those who are actually providing healthcare, particularly black workers who are usually underrepresented in the healthcare professions.
0: And that is a focus here in flatlining. And what happens is that that uh, the healthcare workers, uh, the black healthcare workers, are essentially still in a minority, and yet they seem to be having to do more of the work. Isn't that the context? Yes,
1: that was one of the interesting findings that came out of the book that even with black healthcare workers, as you said, in the numerical minority in most of these healthcare professions, there's still a way in which they do a disproportionate amount of labor to make organizations as diverse as organizations say that they want to be. And I think that's the central paradox in the book that you have these workers who are in the minority who are, in many cases, doing enormous amounts of additional labor uh, because organizations often don't provide the resources to follow up what they say it is that they want to achieve.
0: And so is there the feeling that we can really grapple with this and and come up with a good solution? Do you have a sense of what that solution is? Well, so interestingly,
1: I think that there are some solutions that can occur. And I think that one, it's important to remember that Solutions shouldn't be individual ones. These are more structural and institutional problems that I identify in the book. And I think that when we're talking about structural issues, it's important to think of ways that structures and institutions themselves can reflect what changes need to occur. But I think that what's interesting is that black workers themselves actually provide some of the solutions from an organizational level. In other words, what I mean is that black workers are doing a lot of things to make organizations more diverse and accommodating to communities of color, which is what I refer to in the book as this process of equity work, but that were organizations to take on the responsibility for some of this work, it wouldn't have to be up to the lone black doctor or the few black nurses or the few black technicians to do it. It would be institutionalized and come with the resources in support of the organization so that it could be more powerful and more all-encompassing. So I think that's one approach that organizations can take. Um, I think from a policy level, there are also ways that policymakers can focus on instituting ideas and uh, policies that are more supportive of workers, because I think that would also be really beneficial to many black healthcare care professionals who are in an environment where workers have much less support than they had in previous generations.
0: And... Uh- it's been a a policy effect, then, hasn't it? That this has decreased. That we did have it then for a short time, which was what in maybe oh, the, around the civil rights area, or just post civil rights. Right, well, so if we're talking
1: about healthcare, it's been such a contentious topic for such a long period of time. And there have been sort of fits and starts in terms of progress and how things have moved the needle. One of the things that I learned, interestingly, in working on the book was that historically, I think Harry Truman was one of the early presidents who actually pushed for more of an encompassing healthcare system. And that was obviously back in the early part of the 20th century. It didn't work out the way that he wanted, but that there have always been these pushes for um, more broad and all-encompassing healthcare solutions, followed by backlash where people either got a little bit of progress, but not as much as they would have liked, or not any progress at all. So there have been these fits and starts in terms of how healthcare has um, been able to move the needle in terms of who gets covered and how inclusive or all-encompassing coverage is. I think what's different now is that we're in this environment where organizations and professions recognize that when they're talking about the communities that they serve, the communities today are going to be a lot more likely to be black, brown, Asian-American, and that there's a lot more racial diversity in the country now than there had been in these previous generations. But what I think is missing is that organizations – acknowledge and recognize that, but haven't always taken the commensurate steps to figure out what they need to do in order to meet the needs of those communities. And instead, what ends up happening is that black professional workers take on a lot of that, that labor in the absence of clear organizational initiatives.
0: And so we should take a moment here to really focus on the fact that when we're talking about health care. This is not just some frivolous kind of thing that we want to do, unless one's looking, uh, from my perspective, like maybe cosmetic surgery, you know, because I want a facelift. Th- we're talking about our health and well-being. This is not something frivolous. And that's where, uh, it, isn't that maybe where the policy and where uh, the directors of healthcare organizations need to focus on this being just a human right?
1: Right. That's certainly one approach, that if we're talking about health care, uh, one approach that you could take is that this is a basic right that everyone should have access to. But I don't know that that's a universally um, believed statement. I think that there is a segment of the country and the electorate and of our politicians that does feel as though this isn't something that's necessarily a right that everyone should have access to, but something that people either should be rewarded with, or if they are deemed to have behaved appropriately, or something that people should be rewarded with if they can afford to, to pay for it. And one of the things that's interesting about focusing on black health care workers is that uh, you're able to see the consequences of that sort of debate and that sort of approach for those who are actually providing care, and that for black health care workers who particularly Particularly the ones who work in the public sector where there's not a lot of private funding and there is a great deal of under-resourcing. They deal with the consequences of so many folks who don't have the financial stability and wherewithal to be able to buy private insurance and they cope with not only having to provide care for those groups who are underserved and who are more likely to have chronic health issues because of it, but they also cope with the demands that that takes on them in the workplace when their colleagues or people who also may share some of those same Stereotypes, or prejudgments, or assumptions about the communities of color that they're serving,
0: and there's a piece of education that that bias, the prejudice that exists—that oh, people have chosen not to live a good life. How do we grapple and change that?
1: Right, right. So I think there that sentiment underlies a lot of the viewpoints that i think people have about who receives care and who is entitled to care but i think that that sentiment also underlies a lot of how we look at many of our fellow citizens in terms of viewpoints that certain people either haven't worked hard for things or don't want to work hard for things or don't deserve access to some of our basic necessities like food or shelter or health care or um, any of the other things that are core basics to members of a society living well and living in a kind of healthy, fulfilling fashion. So in terms of how to change that approach, I'm not sure that there's a quick, easy, one-size-fits-all solution But I do think that, again, from a more structural standpoint, public policies can be enacted to minimize um, some of the disparities that are inherent in our political systems so that certain groups aren't disproportionately less likely to have access to food, to shelter, to home ownership, to health care, as one example of, of many of these things. But I think that often... These disparities are exacerbated by policies that do make it harder for certain groups who may already be economically disadvantaged to find equal footing or to have the basic needs that are necessary to live productive lives.
0: And I think that you touch on that in your book, Flatlining, uh, in terms of the public sector and, and the kind of employment that for a period of time was available, perhaps more broadly, to... To the broad population.
1: Right, right. It was really important to me to focus on the public sector because I wanted to talk and think about how it represents a space where. We really see this shift between what private resources can do and what publicly funded resources struggle to do and how healthcare itself is a site where if you have private insurance, uh, putting aside a lot of the debates people have about whether insurance should be in the healthcare business anyway, having private insurance certainly makes your ability to have and access healthcare much easier than if you don't have any uh, insurance whatsoever. So I wanted to talk about what it means to be a worker in the public sector in healthcare, where Uh, We know that the public sector has experienced declining resources and support for probably about the last 30 or 40 years, and that what that means is that people who have to rely on the public sector for health care, who have to go to hospitals that are publicly funded through state tax dollars and state resources that are becoming uh, smaller and smaller and shrinking faster and faster, find themselves in environments where the facilities where they go for care are often strapped for cash and lacking um, the resources. Resources and uh, equipment and things like that, that that are more likely to be available in um, private facilities. So I wanted to really think about what that means for black healthcare workers, considering that the public sector has for a long time or had for a long time been an area where black workers could experience a pretty decent standard of living and some upward mobility. But as the public sector has been shrinking and suffering uh, declining resources, black healthcare care workers still find themselves drawn to the public sector as a way of providing care for those who are most underserved, but it also is an area that creates a lot of stress and a lot of uh, frustration and emotional labor as they deal with the consequences of trying to provide care in an environment where it seems that many of their patients and they themselves are forgotten.
0: Oh, it it <laughs> you feel like you're being kind of... Uh... Beat up on both sides. Yeah, it almost a, such a feels like a no-win situation. And yet, I feel that in flatlining, you do give a, a really well-rounded and historical look at what has gone on, and and it's a very readable book.
1: Thank you. That was a, a big goal of mine. As an academic, uh, <laughs> we sometimes fall into this. Um, pattern of talking only to our colleagues and not writing the most readable things that we can. So it was a goal of mine to try to make this something more accessible to wider audiences.
0: And so that's important for us to realize. Reading this kind of material, reading this book, Flatlining, can give us a better perspective. I know I was really getting a good historical perspective of, you mentioned uh, President Truman and how all... all this kind of began with him and then you know how along the decades it fell down again and it keeps mm-hmm. being uh, beat up you know they always kind of find someone to push it down i think if we get that really good awareness we can be part of the solution mhm
1: mhm right yeah i mean i think that that makes sense and it's important again to think about how these sorts of issues or healthcare in particular but also issues of basic Um, needs for a society really benefit everyone, in my opinion, right? I mean, I don't think that as a society we are best served by people getting chronic illnesses or dying because they simply can't afford the care to to improve their lives. I think that we benefit collectively by having a higher baseline level of standard of living for most people.
0: Absolutely. Such wise words. Absolutely. (laughs) So to this end... Let's get our own copy of Flatlining. And of course, it's available at all of our favorite book sources, correct?
1: Yes, that is correct.
0: And so all of them. And if you go to your uh, brick and mortar store and they don't have it, of course, ask for it by name, Flatlining, Race, Work and Healthcare in the New Economy, correct? Yes, Yes. right. And should people want to get in touch or follow you? How do they go about doing that?
1: I am on Twitter and trying to build a more active Twitter presence at uh, Adia H. Wingfield, W-I-N-G-F-I-E-L-D. And I'm on Facebook as Adia Wingfield as well. So I'm available uh, through both of those mediums.
0: And Adia is A-D-I-A. I I love the name. It's so lovely. It's lyrical. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. So back to this very important, critical uh, topic and about... Individuals' health, again, you know, is just, it rankles to think of people feeling that people have just not lived a good life, therefore they uh, are in poor health. Whereas there are chronic conditions, there are situations that people are just born into, they have no control over. And to penalize them by not providing good health care seems just abominable.
1: Right, right. And I think what's key is what you mentioned this idea of circumstances that can exist outside of the individual. And I think. That's a really important factor to focus on because that is something that really has an impact on healthcare. We know that, for example, people who are born in environments where they experience a lot of economic insecurity or live under the poverty level, that has clear consequences for health and health outcomes. And again, to bring it back to the focal point of what that means for workers, I found that in many cases, black healthcare workers in my study were often very cognizant and aware of the the link and the connection between those social factors and the health outcomes. But one of their frustrations was often that it didn't seem like many of their colleagues took that into consideration when they were talking about caring for their patients. So, for example, I spent some time with an an obstetrician-gynecologist who talked about dealing with uh, patients who were often low-income and how they would just face really challenging circumstances and her, they would come to her hospital sometimes and her colleagues might say well we would like you to stay uh, in the hospital longer and the patients would say well I have to leave and they would sign out and go against medical advice sometimes and her colleagues would say things like I can't believe this patient is leaving this is so irresponsible and you know I can't believe that she would go when she's got this sort of health care condition facing her and her thinking would be well I understand your frustration, but this patient also has kids at home, and she is the primary caregiver for them and for an elderly parent. So would we feel okay if she stayed in the hospital and left her kids without anybody to care for them, as well as her elderly parent? But her viewpoint was that many of her coworkers seemed unwilling or unable to take those sort of social and external factors into consideration. And again, part of what I want to really stress and emphasize in the book is that that has real consequences and dynamics for black healthcare workers. That we might look at black doctors, for example, and think, oh, you're living this fabulous life with this six-figure income and you're a doctor and you've made it, so why? what difficulties could you possibly have? But getting to that point on the occupational ladder doesn't mean that there aren't still challenges that black workers are facing. And for black doctors in particular, some of these challenges came from the disconnect between how they saw patients, particularly low-income patients of color, and how many of their coworkers uh, saw those patients very differently or, in some cases, didn't even seem to figuratively see them at all as people who were deserving and uh, requiring good quality, respectful care.
0: Yes, having that compassion, which is what you feel that the whole profession is supposedly about. Right, right. And then there's the, the sense of uh, the equity work of of many of the patients then being pushed onto, so patients of color being pushed onto the workers of color.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I saw or I saw that happen in some cases, and had a lot of respondents talk to me about that being a process as well. That in some cases, um, patients, excuse me, workers of color, particularly technicians, felt that they were explicitly assigned to do additional work for patients of color to try to do work that was outside of the bounds of their job description for uh, patients of color. But I also found that for nurses and doctors, um, often what they saw were the ways that many of their colleagues. Again would stereotype or mistreat or rather dismissively approach uh patients of color in ways that meant that black healthcare care workers ended up doing this equity work of going above and beyond to try to provide more respectful more more respectful and more um uh more conscious and so to speak conscious care to these to these patients and again that becomes another Level of additional work that gets done when black healthcare care workers are constantly having to be vigilant to make sure that they're offsetting the challenges that patients of color face rather than everyone being held to that same standard of providing case, patients a baseline level of care.
0: yes, indeed and and what the effect that has on just overall health as well, including mental health, to right. take on that extra burden?
1: Right. Right. Exactly. It's interesting because as I was working on this project, I was coming across other research studies that were pointing out that, uh, for example, more women doctors in emergency rooms could actually improve life expectancy particularly for patients who I think had had heart trouble Um, and studies showing that for black men who are patients having a black male doctor could actually result in improved care and higher life expectancy and uh, more compliance with doctor's visits and so forth and I think that my research really fleshes out some of these findings because it gives some insights into how those processes are happening and what my data are showing are that for black healthcare workers, because they do come from a very different perspective and mindset than many of their colleagues in terms of how they approach the work and why they're in the work and the ways in which they view patients, it's somewhat unsurprising that patient care outcomes would... Resultingly, be a little bit different, and that we do see the data that show that having a woman doctor is likely to improve um, or create more save lives, and that having a black male doctor can result in the same the same outcome. So it's important to think about how, um, even though my project focuses on workers, there are clear outcomes that their work has for healthcare systems and for patients and for patients' lives.
0: So have you had reaction? already uh, from the profession, from the professionals, perhaps from the system uh, about your research and this book?
1: Yes, uh, some reactions from healthcare professionals, which fortunately so far has been positive to tell me that I, I got it right, which is always a great feeling as a researcher. <laughs> and it, Definitely what you want to hear when you do research like this. Um, so, so far, uh, the response has been that this seems consistent with what people experience and observe in their own workplaces, which is very, very good to hear.
0: And you also look at the workplaces, look at hospitals. You mentioned specifically Atlanta's Grady Memorial Hospital and and how the hospital over the decades served the lower income and really uh, traumatized uh, population. And then things change when they run into uh, having financial difficulties.
1: Right. And I didn't actually spend time doing data collection at Grady, but I wanted to use them as an example of what types of challenges have befallen public hospitals over the past several decades. And I felt that Grady provided a really instructive example. I actually used to live in Atlanta for a period of time. And I lived there when Grady went through this period where there was real debate about whether or not Grady could stay open because they were behind on so many of their costs and underwater financially. But they also served this function that simply other hospitals, basically they could not close. They served a function that no other hospital in the area was going to be able to fulfill because of their size and their facilities and their location in the downtown Atlanta area. But what I learned in doing the research about what happened to Grady was that as it had been this primarily public hospital that was kind of ahead of the curve, so to speak, in some ways in terms of its willingness to treat black patients, albeit in segregated facilities during the uh, pre-civil rights and some of the post-civil rights era, they also really struggled with the ability to – provide the sort of health care that they wanted to, again, as state funding and public financing began to dry up and become um, less and less a source of revenue that they could count on. And so what ended up happening with Grady was a partnership where they did um, turn over ownership to a corporation, or a company rather, and they got an infusion of private funds, which helped the hospital to gain solvency again, but also meant compromising some things in some areas that several community groups were not so happy with. In terms of their ability to care for patients who, again, are likely to be the poorest, who are disproportionately likely to be patients of color, who, have, who then are disproportionately likely to have more adverse health outcomes than patients to whom those categories don't apply. So Grady really provided a useful example of looking at what can happen or what has been happening to public facilities over the long term. And that speaks to a bigger economic issue that I wanted to think about and talk about in the book. Um, for example, part of the backdrop that the book rests on is this idea that work has changed and become a lot more insecure over, again, the last 30 or 40 years. And a part of how that's happened is that we don't have the same robust public sector that we used to have when it comes to education, healthcare, even in public transportation, public support for public resources has been waning and shrinking for a pretty long time. And that's a big part of some of the challenges that we face because everybody simply doesn't have the economic wherewithal to take advantage of privately owned facilities and services. And when it comes to healthcare in particular, when healthcare comes down to People with money being able to buy privately owned insurance and private services and people without having to rely on public facilities that are underfunded and continuing to be underfunded, like Grady was for a significant period of time, that has consequences for health care outcomes for patients, but it has consequences for workers also and puts them in a real bind that I think is not really productive either for those workers or for the patients who have to use those systems.
0: Yes, absolutely. So there we are at that public sector, which for a time really had supported a good percentage of the population to give them middle income resources and access to such facilities. And so we need to think about those sorts of things. I feel flatlining does give us that opportunity. And and then it makes me think about one of my more favorite quotes about we are only as strong as our weakest link. Right, right. Right. And so how can we not look at this broader picture and what each of us has to do about it?
1: Right. Right. No, I think that's absolutely right. And that's part of what I meant earlier when I talked about how as a society, we collectively do better off when we have a kind of baseline level of standards and resources that are applied broadly rather than uh, kind of a race to the bottom where people are expected to, or people are in environments where um, just access to basic necessities becomes contingent on ability to have enough of a financial base for those things.
0: Yes. Oh, I think you have done such a great service, Dr. Adia Harvey-Wingfield. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, this is really, you know, as I've mentioned already, but it is really such an important book, easily readable, so gives us an insight, yes, specifically into the health field, which, of course, is fundamental to all of us, but really gives us then that view of the bigger picture of who we are and who we should want to be as a people.
1: Right. Thank you. I mean, I, just, I think that's very important, particularly, again, as our society is continuing to uh, proceed along this path where we are becoming a more multiracial society. It's necessary to ask this question, what society are we going to be and are we going to be one where there continues to be as much racial and economic stratification and inequality and lack of mobility? Or are we going to recognize what being a more multiracial society means and create um, opportunities that are more equitably distributed across the board?
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, you have done and I feel are continuing to do such great work. Thank you for being such a strong voice with us this morning.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: And I as well. This is Sunday Morning Shoutout, and it is shouting out for Washington outdoor women. This is about connecting to nature through traditional outdoor skills. Washington Outdoor Women is an outdoor skills education program by women for women. Since 1998, Washington Outdoor Women has been reconnecting women with Washington's wilderness through skill-building workshops and classes such as archery, freshwater, and fly-fishing, Backpacking, waterfowling, shotgun, map and compass, survival skills, Dutch oven cooking, outdoor photography, and so much more. Match your potential with opportunity. You can check out their workshop schedule and register online at http double backslash washingtonoutdoorwomen.org. It is the best gift you can give yourself to be feeling natural in our outdoors, feeling safe in our outdoors. Washington Outdoor Women, WOW, is an educational outreach program of the Washington Wildlife Federation and is dedicated to teaching women and girls outdoor skills and natural resource stewardship. And if you'd like more information, call Jen Sirowitz at 425 785 55. That's Washington Outdoor Women.